0: Well, good morning. Man, it's good to see you guys. You're looking good this morning. So let me ask you a question. Why why do we need to share a message on this, this idea of worship? Maybe another question is why do we need to worship? Last week I shared a statistic that really blew me away that there's 20 or 25% of people in local churches that, that have no idea why we worship. There's no understanding. There's no connection to the purpose behind worship. And I think it's important for us. And so, throughout this month, talking about true worship, we're looking at some of the characters that we see in Scripture and the example that they provide us regarding worship. And so, I want to just as a quick reminder, attach ourselves to this this idea of why. So let me give you four reasons why we worship before I get into looking at these characters. The first reason is this, that we're actually created to worship God. Isaiah 43 in verse seven, the prophet Isaiah speaking for God, he says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. So in other words, God has created you and he has created me for his glory. We have been created to give God glory and we do that as we worship him, as we lift up his name, as we declare his praise, we worship him, we were created to worship him. Secondly, God actually commands our worship. He commands our worship. In Jesus' life, uh, as his ministry began, the Gospels tell us that he went into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil after 40 days of fasting and praying. And in response to the devil tempting him, one of the things that Satan tempted him with was to worship Satan. He said, if you bow down to me, if you worship me, I'll give you all of this that you see." And Jesus' response to that, we read it in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, where Jesus responds back to Satan and says, Worship, he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is quoting out of the Old Testament there as he says that. But we are commanded to worship God. Number three, when we worship, we have a connection to the grace and mercy of God. Richard J. Foster, in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, says this about worship. He said, worship is our response. Have you ever thought about that? We get here on a Sunday morning, and the first thing we do is say, okay, let's worship. We don't necessarily think of it as us responding. We're the ones acting. What Foster is saying is is we're not the ones acting, we're actually the ones responding. Responding to what? He goes on and said, worship is our response to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. It is kindled within us only when the Spirit of God touches our human spirit. The Apostle John in 1 John 4, 19 says it this way, we love because he first loved us. We can say we worship because he has already touched us. God has already done something and we are responding to the overtures of his love. That's why we're able to worship. And number four, God is commendable. In other words, God is worthy. He deserves it. He deserves it. Deserve is not a word that I use lightly. You know, I, I just love it when we, we hear, you know, car salesmen. Hey, get, get the more expensive car. You deserve it. Have you ever heard people say that? You deserve it. I don't even deserve a chocolate milkshake, okay? I, you know, it's, I love chocolate milkshakes. I don't deserve chocolate milkshakes, okay? I struggle with that word deserve. God deserves our praise and our worship, He deserves it. Revelation chapter four and verse eleven, the apostle John it says, "You are." He, he's writing here in, prophetically. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory. And this is a picture into heaven uh, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Lamar Boschman, who is uh, somebody that I've had the chance to listen to some of his teaching over the years and for the past 40 years, he's helped people uh, connect with the presence of God through worship. Here's what Boschman says. He said, worship is not primarily for us. We certainly benefit from it, but worship is first and foremost a selfless act of love toward God. Now, today, what I want to do is go to Luke chapter 7, look at this next example of worship. And really, it's a, it, we're comparing between two particular individuals. But let me read Luke 7, 36. I'm going to read through 39, and then I'm going to jump down to 44 and read the rest of our text. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Verse 44, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Simon is the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's look at some questions that are really raised from this particular event in Jesus' ministry. The first one that I want to ask is, who are these characters? Who are these people? There's a couple of players that we need to really learn about. And the first one is the Pharisee. He's the host of this dinner party, okay? He's the host of this gathering, and we only know that his name is Simon and that he invited Jesus. And we hear about a few things that he said. We hear about some things that he thought. But what can we learn from the, this group called the Pharisees? Now, the Pharisees are a religious organization. And they, they were launched around 300 uh, or so, 300 to 400 B.C. In that, in that time frame. And they are experts in the law of Moses, okay? Now, if you have a legal issue, where do you go? You go to generally to a lawyer, all right? You don't, you don't generally go to your pastor for a legal issue. But in the life of of Jewish people, the Pharisee was a religious lawyer having to do with the law of Moses. It was extremely important to them. And the fact that this man was a Pharisee said something about how he interpreted the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah or the law. And so if you were a Pharisee, we see this being played out in Jesus' life, at the end of his life, the Pharisees, and in Paul's life as well. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. Not necessarily about Jesus' resurrection, but they believed that the dead would be raised, whereas the Sadducees did not believe that. And so it's who you really identified with it was determined by what you believed about certain things. Now the the this group of the Pharisees, this it's called a, a sect, S E C T. This sect was was birthed out of really a desire to preserve the national integrity of Israel. You see Pre-Romans, there was really Greek, uh, Greek leadership and Greeks' desire to Hellenize the world. In other words, they wanted to bring Greek culture to the entire world. And the Pharisees were developed as a way to protect Israel from being Hellenized. They wanted to preserve uh, Jewish culture. They they, they really wanted to, to strictly protect the law of Moses in Jewish society. Now, I'm not saying that those are good or bad things. Those are just the reality of them. But Jesus tells us things and we learn things in Scripture that these particular people really enjoy prestige. They've come to a place where their religious position brought them prestige in society. Now, when you walked in today, what did you do? You looked and you said, well, okay, where's a place that I feel comfortable in sitting? But in Jewish society, you would have waited for somebody to seat you, and they would have seated you according to the level of your importance in society, And the Pharisees wanted to be seated in the best places because it talked about how important they were. They are people that wanted to be perceived as spiritual, that were, they wanted to be perceived as being um, uh, 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 really people that that loved the law, that loved godly things. Um, In fact, scripture talks about when, when we pray, certain things that we should do, and it talks about how the Pharisees wanted to be seen as people that prayed. It was about being seen by others that was really important to them. They really were more concerned with outer purity than with inner purity. When Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, the the Pharisees would say, listen, how dare you heal on the Sabbath because you're not following the law. Now, the law of Moses said that we should just honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, but the Pharisees and others had added to the law that you could only take so many steps on a given day, that you could only do certain things if it meant even preparing food for the day. And so when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, they were saying, we prefer that you be obedient to these man-made laws rather than to heal someone on the Sabbath. So they were a lot more worried about what happened on the outside rather than what happened on the inside. So now let's move to our, our next character, this woman, this, this uninvited party crasher, okay? Because she was not invited to this gathering. And we have a hard time understanding because most of us would not show up at something that we weren't invited to unless we felt pretty comfortable with who's throwing the party. Um, we have a, a term for this, okay, in our society, in our culture. Um, we would call it a party crasher or a wedding crasher. And, and it's just not something that you do. My, my nephew got married a few weeks ago and the invitations went out and some people didn't get invitations, you know, for, for certain parts of the family and people are offended because not everybody got invited. You can't invite everybody. It's just not humanly possible. And if you don't get invited, you don't show up. That's just our culture. Well, in Jewish culture, if you had a party, someone could show up uninvited and it was okay. In fact, the way your house was designed was you had a courtyard, and in that courtyard, there was access to that courtyard without going through the house, and people, if they heard about who you were having over and they wanted to see them or hear them, they would just find their way to your courtyard and they would hang out. That would be like you having a backyard barbecue and having sent out invitations, and your neighbor shows up coming through the backyard. Okay, that would we wouldn't really probably want that. Now a neighbor could show up later. Okay, while you're playing horseshoes and it's all right, but show up for dinner, not so all right. But this woman shows up. Now she's got a strike against her already. She's a woman. In Jewish culture, she did not have the value of a man. I'm sorry when I say that. That, that. that hurts to realize that people went through that, but that was the culture back during the first century. And she was a person that everybody in the room knew. Everybody knew. They knew she had a reputation. She was known for being a loose woman. She was known. In fact, when you, when you do some, some uh, study on this particular passage and you look at this woman, uh, the, the, the writers uh, of, of various other works, they will talk about how she, she may have been a woman that was abandoned, we don't know if it was because of her lifestyle or in spite of her lifestyle or, or the lifestyle came after the fact that she was abandoned. It uses the term prostitute and to show you just how hardcore the opinion is, okay, um, that scholars even use the word whore. That is a terrible word in our culture. But that was the description of this woman. Everybody knew it, and every eye would have been on her. They were watching. They knew she wasn't invited, and yet there she was at this particular gathering. The timeline to me is really interesting because scholars believe that around this same time, Was it where Jesus in Matthew 10 would have said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And so, what we really are led to believe is that this woman is coming to Jesus. She is bringing all of the mess that is her life. She is coming to Jesus. She is wanting salvation. And so I think that's really, uh, really interesting. She's, she's not been invited. Everybody knows her. She has this access. And I love the fact that Scripture talks a lot about how Jesus dealt with women. I, it's, it's amazing to me when we look at things. Take, for instance, when the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery and put her before Jesus to be judged. When we read that story, the first question I have is, where's the guy? If they were caught in the act, where's the guy? How come he wasn't brought in? But they didn't care about that. They wanted Jesus to condemn this woman. And so what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? Because the law of Moses said she should literally be executed by stoning. That means let's pick up rocks, throw them at her head until she's dead. That's what stoning was. What did Jesus say? Whoever has no sin, you can throw the first stone. And the Bible says that he knelt down and he began to draw in the dirt. Some speculate that what he was drawing in the dirt was actually the names of the mistresses of the Pharisees. And that they were under such conviction that they dropped their stones and they walked away. And what did Jesus say? He said to the woman, where are your accusers? She said, I don't have any. He said, then go and leave your life of sin. He acknowledged that she had lived a life of sin, but he said, go. He's offering her forgiveness. And then we see when Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she has to admit to Jesus that that she actually has five husbands, and the guy that she's living with now is not her husband. It was a mess, and yet Jesus offers her forgiveness the water which will cause her to never thirst again. Jesus has this this desire to reach out into the world to the, the ones who are looked at as the lowest of the low, the most sinful of the sinful, and he offers them life. I'm so glad that he does that. We read, we read in scripture that, that, that Jesus always desires to forgive. He offers eternal life. When we look at the Pharisee and we look at the woman, two different responses from two different people. One is legalistically righteousness and thinks that he is all of that and a bag of chips. The other one is obviously a sinner. One has religious position. The other one has a dirty reputation. And I think it's important for us to know that these two people are so different as we look at this issue of worship because now we're gonna look at how they respond to Jesus. Because remember, worship is a response. It's our response. So let's look at how the Pharisee responds to Jesus. Now, he invited Jesus to his home for dinner. In our culture, that's a good thing. If you invite somebody to your home, it's generally a positive thing. But you see, this invitation that Jesus received is part of this Pharisee's desire to judge whether or not he believes that Jesus is actually a prophet or the Messiah, And we understand that because as Jesus allows the woman at his feet to cry on him and to anoint his feet, what does the Pharisee say? He says, you know what? This guy can't be a prophet because if he was, he would know who is touching his feet. And he would know that she is a sinner and he would never let her touch him because he's righteous and she's not. So this Pharisee is making a judgment on whether or not Jesus is a prophet or whether or not he's the Messiah based on Jesus' response to this woman. He is making a judgment. He's making a condemnation. But sometimes we learn more about someone by what they don't do than what they do. What does Jesus say to this man? He says to Simon the Pharisee, Simon, you know, you didn't offer me any water to wash my feet. Now, if I came to your house, you probably wouldn't offer me water to wash my feet. You would trust that I had washed my feet at home. Okay? Now... I've been working out in the yard a lot, and my feet have needed a lot of different washings because it, you get dirty, right? You, you work out in the yard, your feet get dirty. Imagine living in a, in a society, in a culture, in a climate where your feet are dirty basically all the time. So when you would go to someone's house, they would offer you water to clean your dirty, dusty feet. In fact, if they were wealthy, they would even have a servant wash your feet which is a sign of hospitality and respect. But obviously, that's not what Simon offered. In fact, Jesus said, you know what? When I came, you didn't, you didn't give me a kiss. Now, we, we that, that, sorry, we live in the north, okay? We do. We live in the north. And, and getting a kiss, you know, at a public gathering is not, is not acceptable. All right? I I moved here almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. I moved here from out east, which was a completely different culture. It it wasn't a Finnish culture. It was an Italian culture. And I got kisses from men on a Sunday morning on a regular basis. Okay? That's a different culture than we live in here. In Jesus' culture, when you came in to a gathering like this, you would be greeted with a level of warmth that was customary. And Jesus is saying, you haven't done that for me. And then he said, you know, you you didn't offer me any anointing either. In Jewish culture, imagine, you know, they don't have showers. You know, they don't, man, I shower, most days I shower twice a day. I run in the morning, I, so I shower after my run. I shower at night before bed, because I like to go to bed clean, and, and so I'm, I'm a big shower freak. But in Jesus' culture, you couldn't do that. What did they do? They would put other perfumes on so that you couldn't smell the real them. And Jesus said, you, you didn't do that. It was also a way of acknowledging someone's spiritual authority. In the Old Testament, you would, you would anoint a priest. So there was multiple meanings to it. And Jesus said, you didn't do those things. In fact, Jesus uh, previously in Matthew 15, 8 and 9, referring to people like this, referring to the Pharisees, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So Simon the Pharisee, he didn't worship Jesus He looked at Jesus and said, ah, he's he's not worthy of worship. He's not a prophet. He's not the Messiah. He looked at the woman and he said, she's a sinner. I'm righteous. So he was comparing himself to everyone else. But now let's look at the woman and see how she responded. She responded very differently. She comes off the street, comes into this gathering, Jesus, the Bible says, is he's reclining at the table. We don't recline at the table. We sit at the table, okay? I mean, we even, you know, we tell our kids sometimes, don't even put your elbows on the table. You know, we have all sorts of rules. Well, in Jesus' culture, they sat at a very low table, and they would lay on pillows or rugs or whatever, and so your feet would be away from the table, So Jesus is reclined, and she comes to his feet. And the scripture says that she cries. And it says in the Greek that literally this would be uh, like a shower of tears. This is not like a single tear that, you know, hits Jesus' skin. And imagine his feet have not been washed by the host. His feet are dusty and dirty. When you combine water and and dusty and dirty what do you get mud. mud you get mud jesus feet are getting muddy i would i would be i'd be like oh no i, I oh but and, and and this emotion this emotion that she's it's 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 a very outward emotion but it's a deep emotion and now she realizes that, that Jesus' feet are muddy. The solution is I'll take my hair and I'll wipe, I'll wipe his feet clean. The Bible says that she kisses his feet. And it's not a, a one to cut. Man, if I had to kiss feet, man, I, I, I can kiss Levi's feet. My grandson, I can kiss his feet. And it doesn't matter if they stink or not. I can kiss his feet because his toes are so cute. And, it just, and it's wonderful. But... Listen, I'm, I'm, you know, that's, it does, it, she didn't just kiss him once. In the Greek, it's repetitive. And then she takes this, this jar, it's called an alabaster box filled with perfume. The, the point of my message is not even the value of that, but I believe the value of that was Great. And she breaks it open. And once you break open the jar, you can never go back. And that is probably a very valuable substance to her. And she does it as a form of worship. And she breaks it and she pours it on his feet. I, I my, You know, my wife, when she goes to bed at night, she puts lotion on, okay? And and she's, she's rubbing it in. And she's just got to keep rubbing it until it gets rubbed in, right? Because you don't just put it on as a big greasy mess and just leave it there. You have to rub it in. That's what she's doing. She anoints his feet and she's rubbing it in to his skin on his feet. And she is, she is literally not stopping kissing him, not stopping wiping uh, his, his feet off. And she's rubbing this in and she is there. And these things represent something. Because remember, the Pharisee didn't do any of these things. He didn't wash his feet. He didn't kiss him. He didn't anoint him. Her actions speak volumes. She is demonstrating the love that she has for Jesus. Now, I want you to understand that most of us, we would say we love Jesus. Why do we love Jesus? We don't love Jesus because we're just good lovers, that we just, we have this, we got so much love that we can love Jesus. We love Jesus because he's done something for us. In fact, scripture says that the way we even understand what love is is because he loved us. She's understanding what Jesus has done for her sinful self, that Jesus forgives even a woman with such a reputation and she is showering him with worship. She is showering him with praise. She is showering him with thankfulness. These things symbolize things. They symbolize her love, her worship, her subdu- subjugation to Jesus as her Messiah. She's saying, I can't, I'm can't. i not turning back. I'm breaking this container open, and it's out. My worship is out there. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what anybody else says. I am going to worship him, and it is an an extravagant action, not for the sake of being seen like the Pharisee is, but it's all for the sake of worshiping Jesus. Jesus said, you know, the one that that doesn't worship much doesn't think they've been forgiven of much, but the one who worships much, they, they know they've been forgiven of much. Her love was not because of anything other than the fact that she knew Jesus loved her, that he had forgiven her. Paul in Romans 12, verse 1, he said, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. In other words, because God has been merciful to you, you can worship him. That's your response to God's mercy, is worship. The Pharisee believed that he was righteous, the woman knew that she was unrighteous. It's easy for us to look at this situation and, and, and to not ask ourselves any questions, but the question is this, who do you see yourself as in this story? Do you see yourself as the Pharisee? The one who has it all together? The one that's a little judgmental? Or do you see yourself as the woman? The one with the dirty reputation the sullied reputation the one who was who was known by everyone for her sin coming in when others are watching and 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 doing this outlandish act of worship who do you identify yourself with you see Scripture says Jesus said that God is looking. I talked about it last week. God is, He's looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. He's looking for worshipers. Simon the Pharisee never got around to worship, he was more concerned with the outer appearance than he was his own heart. And this woman, a sinner, walked away being forgiven. She was an uninvited party crasher. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that today as we've gathered together with other believers, we've sensed your presence. We've sensed the the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that that as we leave, we will leave with something in our our own hearts, an identification of who we are. Father, your word says that our, literally, our our righteousness is like filthy rags. And that filthy rags is, is a very disgusting type of terminology in the Hebrew. And that's what my righteousness is like. It's awful. And so today, I want to see myself as this woman who is so aware of her sin, and she comes to Jesus, and she kneels down at his feet, and and she washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair, and she anoints them with a very costly perfume. Father, I pray that we would determine that we are going to be such worshipers. That we will not see ourselves as together or see ourselves as legalistically righteous, but that we will admit who we really are and that apart from the mercy of God, we are simply a sinner. Father, I pray today that we will become true worshipers. In your name.